0: Hebrews chapter 11, as we continue in our series in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, and whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And this is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Father, we thank you today for your grace That is so evident to us. We pray that what we know not you would teach us or we have not that you would give us and what we are not that you would make us for Christ's sake. And the people of God said, amen. We have uh, quite a few people who are sick and not with us today Um, or it's just my preaching uh, because last week there was a bigger crowd when Pastor Matt preached. That's okay. Pastor Matt is fishing somewhere somewhere like somewhere where they have fish, and no cell service, so pray for his family. Um, the Haras, uh right now are giving birth uh, to their third, so pray for them. Um, they are about, I think, four weeks early, and so pray that everything goes well there, um, and uh, pray that God would give them grace, and uh, we'll give you updates on that just as soon as possible. Lots and lots of babies here at Christ the Lord Church, and we are very thankful for that. If you're a visitor with us this morning, it's God's grace to us that you're here with us, and we pray that you feel the hospitality of Jesus in our midst. First, I want to talk to you this morning about faith's testing. Faith's testing. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, God brings a trial and a tribulation to Abraham to test his faith. Why does God test the believer's faith? Why does God test our faith? When you come to the scriptures, you must always interpret scripture with scripture. So elsewhere in the scriptures, we find the help that we need to unpack certain other scriptures. If you have a Bible this morning, and I hope you do, turn over or flip over on your app to 1 Peter 1, 6-7. We're gonna look at 1 Peter a little bit, we're gonna look at James a little bit, and Genesis 22. But our main focus is walking through, expositing this text here before us in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, God gave him a test, why does God test our faith? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, In this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number one, under why God tests our faith is that testing reveals the genuineness of faith. Testing reveals the genuineness of faith, and that's what Peter is saying. And that is what God is getting after here, and what the author of Hebrews is bringing forward to us is that Abraham is given a test, he is given a trial, by which will be proved the genuineness of his faith. The testing is put to us often, almost exclusively, in the form of trials and tribulations. Suffering and hardship give us a perspective on our life that we seem to forget in the times of blessing and sunshine. Through suffering, we see if we actually believe what we say that we believe. Have you ever experienced this? Have you had friends or family who talk a big talk, but the walk looks a little bit different? And when the hardship comes, what they say does not add up to how they are living in that moment. Faith that only trusts God in the sunshine is faith that is only skin deep. Because when the pressure is applied, what is on the inside will come out. Okay? What is on the inside will come out in the midst of our suffering. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 15-16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. What he's saying here is that when the heat of trial comes upon us, when the pressure is applied, when the burner is turned up, what's on the inside comes out, and in the midst of the fiery trials and tribulations of the Christian, in the midst of the testing, also we see the rise of temptation. The heat of the fiery trial exposes the sin in our own heart. The temptation rises with the heat of the fiery trial. And how often when we are tested by the heat of these trials, do we explode into anger or self-indulgence or gossip, blame-shifting. God applies the pressure, and the heat of temptation comes to avoid that pressure by blaming on somebody else by indulging the self, through the lust of the flesh, or gossiping, or anger. And how often we fail the test. Through suffering, we learn what we actually value. It is in these trials that our true affections are revealed. Our mission here is helping people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. And that love part is proved when you are facing fiery trials. Your affections are tested. Where do your affections lie? God did not ask Abraham for something small or insignificant. He asked for his only son, the text says. Isaac, his only son. Something of great significance. The promised son. The son that was to make Abraham a great and mighty nation. He asked for this son that had been long awaited for. And this is a reminder, friends, that if you remember what we've been talking about when we've looked at the life of Abraham and Sarah through Hebrews 11, that they did not have a son, and there was no way that they could have a son. They were beyond their years, which I said last time was a nice way of saying they were really old. could not have kids. So God gave them a son. And now God is asking through this test that Isaac be offered up as a sacrifice. It's a reminder if you look at the totality of the story of Abraham that all the good gifts that Abraham had were gifts from God. They were not things that he had possessed in himself. They were not things that he had earned in himself. Every good gift that we have, everything that God has given to us has come from God and still belongs to God. It is simply on loan from God. Your wealth, your family, your house, your health. All of these things, good gifts from God, that he has given to you to steward well, and they still belong to him, but how often do we act and interact with those things as if they belong to us exclusively? You see this primarily in how people interact with their money. Want to know what people love? look at what they spend their money on what do people sacrifice for what do they let go of quickly and easily what are those things though that they hold on to white knuckled unwilling for anybody else to share in those things God gives you a family a house good health wealth job it all still belongs to him And the person who lives in this reality, in this truth, may be shaken by the testing and may be shaken by the loss of these things that God has given to them, but they will not be destroyed because they know that these things are not theirs, but they only belong to God. And they can say confidently with Job, naked I came into my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isaac was not something that Abraham and Sarah could have upon their own. He was a miraculous gift of God, and therefore, in that truth and in that posture, Abraham is able to walk in obedience in the midst of this testing because he knows it is not his, but it belongs to God. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all whatever I have placed in God's hands, that thing I still possess. That thing I still possess. So testing reveals the genuineness of your faith. Second, testing purifies our faith. It purifies our faith. Peter goes on to say that this will be a purification for our faith. That through the trials and the tribulations that we endure, this is the means by which God has chosen to sanctify his saints. And this should not surprise us. In Acts 14, 22, they say this. Through many tribulations must we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said that we would suffer trials and tribulations Not simply because we belong to Jesus, but because God in his good and sovereign plan has placed us in the midst of trials and tribulations that are even more so than just living in a fallen world, so that the tested genuineness of our faith might be worked out and purified. And he likens it to gold, that it's being purified of all of its impurities When the pressure is applied, that all of the things, all the dross, all of the iniquity would be purged out of us. That self would be completely purged out of us so that the Spirit might fill us fully. Peter says in Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes against you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. For our culture would have you believe that suffering is not something that should be desired. If you are suffering, then you must definitely be doing something wrong, you're not living right. Bad karma, or you just gotta work harder, or something. But Peter says, and the author of Hebrews has shown us as we've walked through, that through many trials and tribulations, God purifies us and makes strong our faith that we would endure to the end. So for the Christian, temptations and trials are not something strange. Peter says, you shouldn't be surprised. Like, why am I suffering? Jesus said you would. The apostles suffered. The church has suffered for the sake of the gospel. Not, again, as I said, simply because we live in a fallen world and not simply because we are fighting against the the, the evilness of this world, but because God has chosen to sanctify you through the means of trials and tribulations and suffering. This should not be a surprise to you. It's the new norm for the Christian. Jesus Himself, it says, we learned about this weeks and weeks ago in Hebrews 5. Jesus Himself learned obedience through what? Through suffering. He learned obedience and steadfastness through suffering. And he continued to add faithfulness to that, to the point of the Garden of Gethsemane where he is tempted to walk away, and yet he says, not my will be done, but yours be done. What got Jesus to that point was faithfulness and obedience through trials and suffering that made him able to go through the greatest suffering of the cross. And as we grow in our faith, and as our faith is strengthened and matured, We are able even to receive suffering and trials with joy. And this is not a natural human reaction. This is a supernatural reaction because it is the spirit of God at work in us. The people of God realize that God uses suffering and trials to purify and test our faith that we might become more and more mature. We can receive this with joy. Again, Peter says we should rejoice that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. James 1, many of you know this, count it all what? Joy. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The result of this steadfastness is a life of faithful endurance amid the troubles and afflictions that come your way to the glory of God. So whatever you're suffering in right now, I'd like you to to bring your mind to that. The testings that you're walking through right now, God is seeking to use those things for your good and for his glory. Can you receive those things with joy? What is the pressure revealing about your affections? Maybe we should ask your spouse. When the fiery trials come upon you and the fiery temptation rises with it, we should ask them, do you respond in explosive anger, blame-shifting, gossip, self-indulgence? We should ask your kids. They're always really honest. What about your coworkers? It's always good to ask your pastors, too. They'll give you an honest answer. Testing shows the genuineness of faith. Testing purifies our faith. Testing establishes faith. James says that we will be perfect, lacking nothing. So so testing establishes our faith through testing of our faith, we will be perfected. Not fully in this life, but the process of sanctification is worked out through testing and trials, and those who continue faithful persevering by God's grace to the end are those who will be saved. This is what the scripture says. This is what Hebrews has caused us to realize. Some of you startlingly realize that the author of Hebrews is saying that unless you continue on faithfully through the trials through the tribulations to the end you will not persevere you will not be saved how we know who those who are saved well by those who are there in the end is it all by grace is it all by God's sovereign plan and ultimately none of your doing yes of course but Paul says work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is working in you there was always action And through this testing, your faith will be established. It will produce in you a perfect and complete faith before the throne of God one day. That you have been saved and justified by the work of Jesus Christ alone, and you are being saved, less and less like yourself and more and more like Jesus, and God puts the trial upon you so that you might be saved. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor and glory at the what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith is preserved through testing. It is the faithful, trialed, tested saints that will inherit the kingdom of God one day. They are the ones who will persevere to the end. It is those who, when they meet the trial, say, I'm done. It is those who put their hand to the plow and realize there's some hard work to be done in the kingdom of God and look back that are not fit for the kingdom of God and will eventually fall away. It is those who do not look back but look forward. It is those who have a faith that actually works itself out. This is why God tests us. This is why God tested us. Abraham, let's prove, Abraham, how genuine is your faith. Faith goes to work. Faith goes to work. You can tell me every detail of your job. Tell me about your boss, the mission, the inner workings of your business. But unless you show up to work, right, you can talk all you want. But unless you actually clock in, it doesn't mean anything. And this is how often Christians live. They speak a big game, like the guys that you meet who speak a big game about basketball. Clay Steelman. joking. (laughs) I know, I know. We'll have to have 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 a game. A one-on-one. But you meet these guys, and Clay, you've met these guys too. They talk a big game, but you get them on the court, and it's a different story. Right? So, faith goes to work. Faith must be worked out. Unless you work out your salvation, you will not be saved in the end. Now hang on, Pastor Jeff, you're saying that God is sovereign and we can't do anything to save ourselves, but I have to work at my salvation. Well, yes. First of all, faith we see is given. We've seen this all through the Book of Hebrews. Faith is given. It was faith given to these people in Hebrews 11 that helped them do anything at all. They were just a ragtag band of nobodies until so God's grace called them and, and enabled them to walk in obedience. So, so faith is given. In Romans 4 18 to 25, Paul uses Abraham as a great example of received faith. He says that Abraham receives faith. He says he was justified by the faith that he had in God. Speaking of Abe, he says, who in hope believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why, Paul says this in Romans 4:22. that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, who delivered him up for our trespasses and raised him for our justifications. He's, Paul here is using Abraham as a picture of somebody who received faith. He's saying Abraham would not have been able to do any of this unless he had received God's gracious, undeserved favor and merit, so we receive faith, it is a gift. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, amen? You cannot work and earn it yourself. No, you are totally depraved, and that's the gospel. God created all things for his glory, man fell from that, therefore we, un- we inherit Adam's curse. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus comes to redeem, And he is restoring all things to himself. We are saved by Christ alone. Believing faith is a gift from God. You have absolutely no ability to save yourself. People are saved by God's sovereign choice. And as the sovereign Lord of the universe, whatever he chooses is perfect, good, and beautiful. And this is why Christians should say amen. He is good and perfect and sovereign, and his choice is best. But as I said a few minutes ago, you might be saying, okay, hang, hang on, you're saying that unless I work for my salvation, I won't receive the promise, I won't inherit the promise, but you just said that I can't earn my salvation. What is the answer? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So you receive grace. You, you receive the quickening of the Spirit of God that illuminates your heart and points you to Christ. Jesus does not throw you some life preserver. No, he goes down to the bottom of the ocean and puts life into your dead and rotting corpse. That's the gospel, and that's good news, amen? But also now, he gives you his new heart and new power and says, now go walk in newness of life. Now go sin no more. So faith is received, but faith is also worked out. So Abraham, Paul says, receives faith, and it's a beautiful picture that he could do nothing in and of himself unless he had received grace. But if you turn over to James 2, James says, well, actually, Abraham was justified by his works. Well, which is it? Paul, James, who should we go with? Are we justified by grace or are we justified by works? Again, the answer is yes. Faith is worked out. Luther again, he says, we are are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. As I mentioned, James 2, James uses Abraham as an example of faith being worked out, or rather, faith being worked on. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he actually means, in the literal language there, is work on your salvation, Yes, the only reason you're working on it is because you have received the work of Jesus on your behalf, but those who have received the work of Jesus and his righteousness will then go and do accordingly, they will act accordingly to what has been done to them. James says that Abe is justified by his works. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He's using our text here today to make his point justified by works, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And you see a person who is justified by works and not by faith alone. So in these two passages here, Paul and James are not contradicting each other. Scripture does not contradict each other. Does not contradict itself, not contradicting each other, but instead showing how genuine faith is supposed to work. James is saying that good works demonstrate that you have been justified. If there is no good works there, then there is no evidence that you have been justified. True faith is given to us by God, and true faith is proved as we work out our faith through good works. Mature faith lives in the righteousness of Christ. This is why we can't preach a partial gospel. The full gospel is this. We fell into sin, Jesus comes to redeem us by living a perfect life, Dying a substitutionary death in our place. He raises again from the grave, giving those who put faith in him newness of life. And he ascends to a throne where he is seated, ruling and reigning over all things as Lord. And those who will follow him must bow the knee. And are given the ability to bow the knee because the new life they have been given in Christ. The fullness of the gospel is that those who have been justified will go now live in that justification. James says it's quite simple. You are not saved by good works, but good works so that you have been saved. James says that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. And he's not disagreeing that, that faith alone saves. The completed by its works means that his, his faith was brought to a maturity. As the scriptures already told us in Hebrews, that we are growing up and maturing in Christ. And this is the picture of the believer. No longer, no longer drinking milk, but beginning to eat solid food and meat. This is a sign of those who are growing. Which, which byproducts should be those who continue to walk in the, the weakness of drinking milk and, and and claim that they have been believers for a very long time, but you have not seen any progression or any growth. You don't see any meat being eaten. It's like a grown man walking around drinking a bottle. It's it's a laughable thing. This, James says this is ridiculous, and Paul would agree that your faith is matured through your good works. And how does God work that out? Through testing, through trials. The testing of the genuineness of your faith, the purification of your faith, the faith that will continue to sanctify you until you see Jesus face to face. Yes, it is all of his work and all of his doing, but the sovereignty and work of God and your partner is like pedals on a bicycle. They work in tandem. They work together. James is saying that full-grown and genuine faith is seen in the good deeds that it produces. Jesus tells us that we will see and know people by their fruit, by the fruit that they produce. This is an apple tree because it's bearing apples. And those are good apples. I see. I, I taste those things. It is a, a false worldly ideology that says that Christians are not supposed to judge. You ever heard that before? Well, you're a Christian. You shouldn't be judging. Judge not. You have to be judged. They, don't, they, they know that part of the Bible, but no other part of the Bible. Right? Now, Christians are supposed to be fruit inspectors, All right? First off, Christians need to open their own heart up and say, search me, O Lord, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and try me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me test my fruit, but I'm also supposed to look around at my brothers and sisters in Christ, in my church, at my school, in the world, and say those who claim the name of Christ must act accordingly. And how do believers act accordingly? By walking as Jesus walked, by walking in newness of life, And what does God say? You must be holy, for I am holy. This is the mark of a mature believer as their faith is worked out. If you have received grace to believe, then you will continue to walk in that belief that grace has produced in you. If the smoldering wood of your heart has been set ablaze by the breath of God, then that same breath will fan that flame into a raging fire that will last. If you are a sheep, as Pastor Rusty has reminded us, then you will do sheepy things, All right. How do I know if I'm a goat? How do I know if I'm a sheep? Well, goats eat garbage. They'll, give anything, they'll eat anything you give to them, All right. Sheep are dumb. I won't go down to that road. But sheep need a shepherd. Sheep need each other, although they really don't like each other. Are you doing sheepy things? Examine your life. Ask those who know you well, to watch you when the test of your faith comes around. How do you respond? When the heat is turned up, when the test is placed upon you, when God looks and points to the thing that is dearest to your heart, like he did to Abraham here, what is your response? Is it one of excuses or dragging your feet, or is it one of, yes, Lord, I will obey? If Jesus is your Lord, then you will act accordingly. If you love God, then you will hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. Because of Abraham's obedience, he is called by James a friend of God. And this is in contrast to those who have no acts of obedience to speak of. They have no good fruit to prove their claims of faith and therefore they are not seen as friends of God, but instead they are seen as friends of the world. And James tells us in James 4.4 that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. True faith is seen in our good works as it's worked out. True faith is seen in obedience, obedience to God's command. This is what faith is. Faith is not some abstract thing. Faith is not some leap in the dark. Faith is obedience to the Lord's call. This is what Abraham did when God called him out of his land and said, I'm going to take you to a strange land. This is what Abraham did when God looked at him and said, I'm going to give you a son. This is what Sarah did when God said, I'm going to give you a son, even against all odds. And now, as God has called Abraham to sacrifice his only son, faith is seen Not in him saying, oh, isn't God good and I'm going to sing a praise and worship song right now to get my heart worked up. No, it was seen in saddling his donkey and getting his son and his servants and getting some wood and obeying. Like like flesh and blood, early in the morning, moving out, not understanding all the details. Faith is seen in our obedience. Faith is worked out. Faith is not a mere intellectual agreement without a genuine personal trust in Christ. A mere intellectual agreement, a mere mental assent to Christian ideas will not save anyone. This is not saving faith. A true faith is not simply saying, well, I am a Christian. No, that's not it. James says that the faith of those who say they believe, but have no good works to prove their faith, but simply just say they believe? He said, you're no better than the demon. It's because the demons believe. The demons believe and they shudder. And the only difference between a person like that and a demon is at least the demons shudder. At least they stand in fear. One commentator says, mere mental assent to the Christian faith does not save anyone. The faith that saves, as both Paul and James affirm, embraces the truth of the gospel and acts accordingly. Lives it out. Abraham, offer up your son, your only son, Isaac. Faith's proper response, yes, Lord. That is real faith. Let's look at faith's reasoning. I've got two more points for you. Faith's reasoning he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, which, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we have faith testing. God tested Abraham's faith by calling him to obey. Now we have faith reasoning. How does, how does Abraham see this? How does he get to this point? How was Abraham able to obey God in such a remarkable way? Well, he did the same thing as his wife did preached about this a couple weeks ago. Abraham did the same thing that Sarah did. Sarah considered God. The language is the same there. Abraham does the same. He considers God. Abraham considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. The word considered here means to calculate or compute. Abraham considered who God was and what God had already done. And through this reasoning, he, he figured it out. He worked it out. Through his reasoning, a solution was being worked out. He did not walk in blind faith. Genuine faith is not some blind leap in the dark. That is foolish talk. It is a misunderstanding of what faith is. You hear people all the time saying, well, I'm just taking a leap of faith. That is not biblical faith. You know, Abraham considers God. He calculates. He thinks through it. He did not indulge in faith without reason. In fact, indulging in faith without reason, I think, is simply lazy or cowardice faith. Leap of faith language is for those who are either too lazy or who are too big of a coward to really dive in and consider God and what his promises are and what he's called us to do. One way we can consider God is by considering him in his holy word. The scripture contains everything pertaining to life and godliness. It is sufficient and authoritative. Every issue we see in our culture today, all the craziness that we see around us, good being called evil and evil being called good, it all is a Bible problem. It all goes back to people not considering God and allowing him to be the authority and fully sufficient on every matter of life. Abe considered God and reasoned the situation through the lens of faith. He was logical. He was almost mathematical in his reasoning of this. And this logic enabled Abraham to walk in bold obedience. It enabled him to take bold risk. And here was his line of reasoning. Here's Abraham's line of reasoning. God had promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand. Abraham believed God. You can go read it in Genesis 15. God comes to him, makes a promise, and Abraham believes. Of course, this is faith that he has received. It's grace to be able to do this. He's a nobody until God calls him. God promised that through Isaac, uh, the great covenant of blessing would come. And Abraham believed. And even though Abraham and his wife's body were as good as dead, Abraham believed. Abraham considered the circumstances surrounding Isaac's birth, and all of it was completely impossible in regards to human terms. But what did God say to Sarah? With God, what? All things are possible. With God all things are possible. Jesus says the same things to his disciples. They say, "Lord, how, how is this possible?" He says, "With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible." Like Sarah, Abraham's faith looked to the promise instead of the obstacle. Abraham learned to not look at the promise of God through the mist of interposing obstacles, but instead to view the difficulties and hindrances through the clear light of God's promise. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you the analogy of looking through binoculars the wrong way. You look through the binoculars on the big end, and everything seems very far away. The same thing is true of your faith. If you look at what God has asked you to do and you have to look through it, at it through the obstacle, of course your faith is going to be weak. Turn the binoculars around and look at it in the proper way that God has called his children to look at it. By the truth of his word, it is real, realer than all the things that stand before you all, it is hard at times to realize that because what is in front of you is flesh and blood, what is in front of you is a stubborn kid, what is in front of you is an unbelieving spouse, what is in front of you is the evil of the world, and that seems really real. And in the midst of trial, hardship, the genuineness of your faith and what you believe is actually really possible is shown. Sarah and Abraham both have to look at the obstacles with the promise of God, glasses on if you will. They look at those things. And If you go through the scriptures from the beginning to the end you will see people that had to learn this lesson from illiterate fishermen who are now tasked to go forth and to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to a shepherd boy fighting a giant, to Noah building an ark, to a man praying at his window and being threatened with thrown to the lions, to three young men who will not bend or bow and so they don't burn. You see people looking at all the obstacles through the lens of faith instead of looking at faith and the promises of God through the lens of all their obstacles. To look at it by turning the binoculars around. Abraham continued to reason through this. God had promised a son to him in his old age. This old patriarch who was as good as dead, this is important language, Abraham and his wife are as good as dead as it pertains to being uh, able to have children. Good as dead. Now Abraham applied that reasoning to what God has commanded him now to do with his son. Abraham was as good as dead, yet God promised him a son, and it came to pass. Isaac was to be the start of a vast family that God had promised. And at this very moment, Isaac was not married, nor did he have children, and about to be sacrificed on an altar. In this very moment, Isaac was as good as dead. And Abraham says, I was as good as dead as it came to having children, and God did the miraculous. I didn't know all the details, but I saw it come to pass because I put my faith in the one who cannot lie. I will take that reasoning now and apply it to this situation because my son has not had any children. He has no wife, and God says I'm supposed to kill him. I don't know how I'm supposed to have descendants. Why would God ask this of me? I- ironically, the um, Genesis 22 account says he didn't tell Sarah. And I don't know if Sarah grown in her faith to trust him or not, but like, Finally, she has a son, and now Abraham's like, yeah, this is what God told me to do. It says he got up early in the morning and left. Because it didn't make any sense whatsoever to him. In this moment, he is as good as dead. But he trusts in this moment that God will do the impossible. So now, in light of that faithful reasoning, Abraham was able to leave all the details the God who does all things well. Okay? God worked miraculously before. I don't understand why he's doing this, but I know he is good. I have tasted and seen that he is good. He is not a tame lion, but he is good, so therefore I will trust. I don't know all the ins and outs. I just know I was dead and God did the miraculous. My son's as good as dead, so I trust that he will do the miraculous here now. And he left God to work out all the details. It's in God's hands now. God's word through Isaac. This is what Abraham believed. God promised that I would have a son and through that son there would be a great nation and a special blessing of a Messiah coming. So God must be faithful to his word. God's word through Isaac had to be fulfilled. And this is what gave Abraham the boldness in his obedience to go forward. Sarah and I were as good as dead. Isaac now is as good as dead. So his is his reasoning. God's going to have to bring him back to life. God's going to have to bring him back to life. That's that's the only option. Abraham had never heard of a resurrection from the dead, but he knew that God had to bring this boy back to life because God had said, through him all your descendants will be, and through him all the nations will be blessed. There is simply no other way. God has to keep his word. And this is why he says, if you read the Genesis 22 account, Abraham says to his servants, stay here with a donkey, he told to his servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You guys stay here. Isaac and I are going to go over there. We will both return to you. This is where his faith is at. Even though he could not see it, Abraham was so certain and so confident in God's promise through Isaac that he saw it as a present reality. I'm going to repeat that. You need to listen. This is, this is what... This is what our forward-looking faith, that the promise is not yet revealed to us. Abraham has not seen a vast host, a vast inheritance. He has not seen descendants more numerous than the stars in the sand. He hasn't seen that yet. But his faith is so real as he trusts in the God who cannot lie and the God who cannot die that he sees this as a present reality. That is what hope is. Even though he could not see Abraham was so certain and so confident in God's promise through Isaac that he saw it as a present reality. He interacted with God's future promise as it was a moment-in-the-moment reality. Spurgeon says, a little faith will bring the soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. This is no wonder that Abraham is called the father of all who believe. So as our heart, listen, believingly ponders the divine attributes of Almighty God, our smoldering unbelief is fanned into the flame of faith and it burns hot with the fuel that he who promised is faithful. It is the mind that is stayed upon Jehovah that is fully blessed. It is in God himself that we find perfect peace and rest. Abraham loved his son, but he loved God more As we faithfully walk in obedience to our Lord's command, we joyfully, we must joyfully contemplate who God is and what he has already done and been faithful to. And often this joyful meditation will quicken our stride as every step finds solid purchase in the faithful promise of the God who cannot lie. As it was with Sarah, And now, Abraham, so it is with us. Every promise of God is reinforced by this consideration. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This truth filled Abraham's faith, It fueled it into action. He is confident that the Lord will provide. As he walks up the side of the hill, his son is not stupid. He's he's made sacrifices with his father before, and he says, "Uh, Dad, where's the sacrifice? I see the wood, I see the fire, I see the knife. Where's the sacrifice? What is Abraham's response? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He does not know the end from the beginning, but he knows the one who knows all things and does all things perfect. Perfect. He does not fear, Abraham here does not even fear death itself. Neither should you, dear saints. Because as Chesterton said, he put it this way, Christianity has a God who knows the way out of the grave. We have a God who knows the way out of the grave, and Abraham believed that God could bring him back to life. Our God knows the way out of the grave. This is the bedrock of our faith Isaac points to, you see some similarities here in this story? Isaac points to another son who was the joy of his father's heart. An only son who actually was physically sacrificed by the will of his father. Abraham was called to offer up his son and he obeyed, trusting that God would bring him back to life. Jesus was called to offer up himself and he obeyed the will of his father, committing himself to his father and trusting, trusting that God had promised to raise him from the dead. And what did the angel say to the disciples, the women who looked on? He is risen. Just what? As he said he would just as he said he was. In the same vein, friends, as you see suffering should not be something that you're surprised by, nor should you be surprised when God keeps his promise. You're like, wow, I expected all this crappy stuff that's real flesh and blood life stuff to actually happen. But why are you so surprised when God actually keeps his promise to sanctify you, to discipline you, to preserve you, to save your unbelieving friends, like, do you actually believe that he's capable of doing those things? Maybe not. Last point: faith sacrifice. We see faith testing. We see faith reasoning. Now, faith sacrifice, and with this will be done. Verse seventeen of Hebrews eleven says that he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. So. His son, Isaac, his only son, who he loves. Isaac means laughter. He's the joy of his father and mother's heart. Also, through Isaac is to be the promise fulfilled. That's a big deal to Abraham. And it's his only son. Like, this is my only shot, right? Like, you notice that Abraham didn't, when when he's going up the mountain to sacrifice his son, he doesn't say, well, I guess God could give us another son. Because he remembered that God said, through who? Through Isaac, through this son, I will do these things. So there he comes with the reasoning that God's going to have to raise him from the dead. So most of you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, and you know that God spared Isaac, right? He provided a ram there for him. But here's the important piece. It's really important that you understand that Abraham actually did sacrifice Isaac. He did sacrifice him. What the text here is saying, when it says, he offered up Isaac, when the author of Hebrews said, he offered up Isaac, he is using words that in their original meaning refer to a completed and past action. The author of Hebrews is saying, he actually did this. He actually offered up his son in past time. This means that the sacrifice actually did take place as far as Abraham's resolve and obedience were concerned. Abraham's obedience was so full and he was so resolved in his faith that God saw in light of what took place that he actually did sacrifice his only son. From God's perspective, as well as from Abraham's perspective, Abraham did it. He offered up his son, although he did not physically offer him up, physically sacrifice, in his obedience he did in accordance to his God's command. He completely offered up the beloved son who was the laughter and the joy of his life. So if we really believe that God is able to even do things that are completely impossible for us to fathom, do you believe that God really does know the way out of the grave? Do you believe that? You can say amen if you amen. believe it. Kyle believes it. All right, I'll try again. Do you really believe that our God knows the way out of the grave? Amen. amen. Some of you need to get saved to become Baptist. So what are you struggling with right now in your life to trust that truth? Well, it just seems impossible, God, it seems that if I, if I give this over to you, then that dream is dead. If I, if I give this over to you, then it's done. It's as good as dead. Do you believe that God knows the end from the beginning and does everything perfect and good? And if you say amen to that, do your actions actually back that up? You can say amen in the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can say amen in the circle of your Christian friends. But does that actually actually prove when there is no one around to hear the amen? And God points to the very precious things of your heart, the things that have most of your affection, even good things that he has given to you and says, "I want that." Do you say, amen, I agree, and I give it to you in obedience and joy. You see, this is, where our, this is where our faith is worked out and seen as genuine. It is in the trials and the tribulations and the suffering where many fall away. Everybody loved Jesus until he said he was king and Lord over all, and there was no way to the Father except through him. And then when they put him on a cross, Everybody liked him when he was feeding them or he was a political figure or whatever else. But when Jesus says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, many people said, I'm out. Jesus has many followers, very few disciples. And this is the case with so many. When God points to that thing, are you willing to give it up? So what stands in opposition to your obedience? What stands in opposition to faith's obedience? What keeps you from offering up the sacrifice? Well, it's just common sense, maybe. I've done the the reasoning, like Abraham, and I've just come out on the other side that it's just not reasonable for me to do that. But perhaps you're reasoning through the lens of your human eye, you're reasoning through the obstacle versus reasoning through God's word and through his promise. Maybe you're afraid to say what you need to say to your unbelieving friend because you're afraid that you will lose them. How how am I going to share the gospel with them if I lose them? Do you really believe that God is sovereign over salvation? Do you really believe that God is the one who looked down from eternity past and placed his love on people? Well, then if you do, then you can walk forward in wisdom but in boldness and proclaim the truth and trust God with the outcome of that person's soul. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that God has given you everything that you need and he has promised to provide for you everything that you need and you have not and will not go without? I, I said this a couple of weeks ago. Like In our household, we often say we lack no good thing. I lack a lot of things I want. Right? A lot of things I want but I don't lack anything that I need and God has given to me an abundance, overflowing. But does your money reflect that you truly believe that God will always provide your needs or are you stingy and hoarding because you really don't trust that God will provide for you? Therefore, you are not generous with your finances. You do not give to the church. You do not give for the glory of God and you call it Rational wisdom, being a good steward of your money. There's other things I could see on the other side of that, of course. But th- this, is, this is where faith comes to real life. And if we're going to be people of faith, then it has to be worked out. Because we have no time. There's no time for people who talk big and act little. Do we really believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe that, friend? Well, if you believe that, then you do not have to fear the arrow that flies by day. Or is it by night? Either one, right? Day or night. You don't have to fear what the world will do to you. In fact, you can do a dance when you go around the corner when people have persecuted you for the name of Jesus because you are blessed by your Father. You don't have to care what pagans say about you because your Father has called you blessed. Blessed. But do you really believe these things? The proof's in the pudding, as they say. Fear stands in the opposition to the sacrifice. Ultimately, it's this, though. Loving something over and above God. That's what always stands in the way of the sacrifice. Always. In order to walk in such obedience to the offering up of his son, Abraham first has to offer up the thing that stands in opposition to all of God's commands. He had to offer up himself. He had to die to himself. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't look through the lens of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Death to self. Come and die has always been the call of the gospel. This is always the way. God knows the way out of the grave, amen? But in order to come out of the grave, you first have to be brought to the mouth of the grave. You have to be, to come out of the grave, you have to be brought to the cross, To inherit the blessing, Abraham had to come to the altar and put the wood on it and sacrifice his son in his obedience. Death to self is always the first step of obedience. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross every once in a while and follow me. Daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Let me give you some action points and we'll be done. So in light of faith's obedience, We should act accordingly. Christians should act accordingly. Christians will, true Christians will act accordingly. Those who are not will claim faith and not act accordingly. From Abraham's example, here's how we obey. Faith obeys first promptly. Faith obeys promptly. The text says that Abraham's faith produced immediate obedience. The phrase, when he was tested, what did he do? When he was tested, he offered up his son. Also in Genesis, the account says Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He did not stall. He did not procrastinate. He did not drag his feet. He did not argue or bargain with God. Abraham had learned well to obey, be obedient right away. He had learned well from Lot's wife, who drug her feet out of Sodom and then looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. His obedience was immediate. Even though every fiber of his natural being was rebelling against what God was calling him to do. Of course it doesn't feel good. Of course it doesn't feel natural. It is supernatural. Death to self is always hard. Of course it is. Of course it is. The cross was not a pleasant experience for our Savior, but for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12 says. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Why? because he was being obedient to the will of his Father, because through suffering, not in spite of it, but through suffering, God exalted him and gave him a name above every name. And the same thing is true for us as is of our Savior. It is through suffering, it is through trials that our faith faith is tested and purified and seen to be genuine. Faith obeys promptly. Two, faith looks to God expectantly. Expectantly. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come into you again. He expects God to do something big. I wonder if the psalmist had this in mind when he wrote Psalms 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The mountains I have to cross are nothing because I know the God who made the mountains, who made the heavens and the earth. And faith can confidently say, God will provide himself a lamb for this burnt offering, son. Faith looks to God expectantly. Three, two more. Faith obeys God fully. When Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, whenever you see something mentioned twice, it's something of urgency, and he has to yell at him twice to get his attention. And Abraham said, "Uh, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. His hand is coming down, full obedience, not partial obedience. Number four and the last one, faith obeys God joyfully. Faith obeys God joyfully. Our faith is strengthened through testing, whether it's singing in the stocks after you've just been beaten like Paul and Silas, or being a jolly brawler as you fight the evil around you and laugh at the face of danger and laugh and thank God for the persecution that comes against you, we can endure and embrace suffering with joy as Jesus did, knowing the outcome of it will make us more like Jesus to the glory of the Father. We are being tested to become more like Christ. Therefore, we should welcome it. With all of our heart. Because what God is doing and testing is taking out all the Jeff and putting in all the Jesus so that I might become more like Christ. And becoming more like Christ, that is what glorifies the Father. Not becoming my authentic self. No. Becoming like Christ, who truly is my authentic self. Because I was made to glorify and worship and obey him forever. That's the void in my heart. And that's why we try to stuff it full of all sorts of things. We'll only be satisfied in Christ. So we can embrace suffering with joy, knowing that it will make us more like Jesus. And people who have a faith like that, a mature faith, a a joyful faith, in the midst of trials, they will not be shaken. Because they can confidently say, as the psalmist does in Psalm 16, he makes known to me the path of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures. Forevermore. We say this in our household to our kids when we ask them to obey, when we tell them to obey. You're to obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart. Right away, all the way, with a happy heart. God asks us to obey right away in faith, all the way in faith, with a happy heart in faith. So go act accordingly. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. My sermon was shorter than it was last week. Visitors are like, what? Hey, praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is good. We cannot get enough. So we thank you for the spirit of God who now takes the word of God and plants it deep in our hearts. The spirit of God who is the true preacher. I pray that no one would leave this place still resistant to your call. That they would not harden their hearts through unbelief. But that you would soften their hearts. Would you do the miraculous thing and overcome their unbelief for your glory and for our good. Amen.